One immediate lesson many drew from this event was a reconsideration of the risk of fiat liabilities in an environment where trust is lacking, including the trust not to violate territorial integrity and Westphalian sovereignty. This event reinforced the nature of fiat money as a system of centrally maintained ledger entries denominating a unit of account corresponding to a sovereign authority's sphere of power. As such, the use of such a liability as a medium of exchange or store of value is contingent on the political assent of that sovereign authority. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And if you have not listened to yesterday's episode to read 710, this one's not going to make much sense because it's the second half of that read. And this is, this is where we get into the geopolitical implications. So he laid out the premises, the, the kind of foundation the kind of starting points for understanding where we are, the, the different, the short term, the meso, the, the micro, the meso, and the macro domain. So laying out the major players and the major factors that are moving these things around. And then also eliminating what wasn't or what is not going to lend itself to any degree of predictability is, you know, Russia just goes nuclear, uh, China has a full invasion of Taiwan, like these things would fundamentally and massively shift any ability to foresee how they're going to play out and which players end up coming out with more political power and specifically more trust as a monetary hegemon because Essentially, that's what we're talking about is, is what will be the replacement of the new or what is going to take the place of the falling assurances, the, the decline in the assurances and the decline in the trust and reliability of the current monetary order. What will replace it? What will kind of fill in the gap and why? And that is what he gets into with part two. Uh, this is halfway through the thing. So we got about like, I think it's like 45 minutes or 50 minute read. Um, and we're going to jump right in. That's just kind of the foundation they laid in yesterday's episode. And we are getting right into part two. A quick thank you to Swan Bitcoin for both, for the premium onboarding service, being able to get your IRA and like your Bitcoin, I mean, your, uh, your retirement accounts. Uh, exposed to Bitcoin, to have an automatic long-term savings plan, to have a Bitcoin-only resource. They're an amazing resource and a longtime supporter of this show. And also CoinKite, the makers of the Cold Card hardware wallet, and now the Cold Card Q1. I'm a big fan of the Mark IV, and I'm stoked. I've already got my pre-order for the Q1. The link to check it out is right there in the show notes. And then lastly, Fold, the Sats Back card on everything in your life 
I want you to understand the magic of paying bills and getting sats. And there's a link right in the description of this show that will take you to that magical place. Do it. <laughs> All right, with that, uh, let's go ahead and get into today's read. And this is part two of the future geopolitical order and Bitcoin, an initial assessment. And we are starting in on this section titled Scenario Analysis. What goes on inside is just too fast and huge and all interconnected for words to do more than barely sketch the outlines of at most one tiny little part of it at any given instant. David Foster Wallace Every scenario in the Argo of Pentagon Wargaming starts with assumptions and artificialities and then presents a ground truth. The former fix the parameters of the notional future, and the latter unpack the salient context and detail to examine the issue under analysis. Our assumptions and artificialities defined over the time horizon of interest, 2022 to 2030. 1. Putin does not use nuclear weapons or mass use of chemical weapons beyond irritants in Ukraine. 2. Putin does not get deposed or assassinated. Though he may die of suspected disease, we assume his replacement is another Salaviki and won't fundamentally liberalize Russian society or change foreign policy. 3. China does not launch an unprovoked full-scale invasion of Taiwan. This doesn't preclude actions against offshore islands like Dongying, Pratas, or other provocative moves in the South China Sea. 4. The Chinese Communist Party remains in power, most likely with Xi at the helm, but this is not assumed. 5. No new breakthrough technologies or scientific discoveries are made that change the fundamental productivity or energy capacity of society, or destabilize human social order, for example UAP disclosure. 6. No existing nuclear powers collapse or engage in nuclear hostilities, for example, Pakistan or North Korea. And new nuclear powers, examples of Saudi Arabia and Iran, do not engage in nuclear conflict. 7. No debilitating attacks on global internet infrastructure are launched. This includes cyber attacks, cable cuts to undersea fiber links, destructive anti-satellite attacks, etc. 8. No new COVID variant or other pandemic brings civilization back into a 2020 state of lockdown or worse. 9. The global food fertilizer system does not collapse and lead to multi-continent famine, killing more than 5-10% to 10 of world population, destabilizing social order throughout the world, including the West. And 10. The United States, or Europe for that matter, does not experience a political crisis that leads to a breakdown in constitutional order, a fundamental change in the federal structure of government, or a secessionist breakaway block of states. There are probably others one could list, but these seem to be among the most salient and plausible, if individually unlikely, risks that, if they were to occur, 
would so dramatically alter the basic order of the global system as to render analysis post facto impossible, or at least beyond the scope of this essay. The intent in listing these is to bracket off, for the sake of discussion, a range of outlier tail risk scenarios to allow instead a focus on a possible course of global system evolution that, while disruptive, doesn't involve the systemic collapse of critical infrastructure, use of nuclear weapons, or breakdown of social order. That's not to say those bad things can't happen, or that I rule them out too core. Just that we need to keep things somewhat bounded if we hope to get any handle on how the crazy mess we already face may evolve in the near future. Ground Truth Chaos is a ladder. Littlefinger A scenario ground truth, in a general sense, presents the empirical context for analyzing a future operating environment. In this case, the near-future geopolitical order and associated monetary regime. Developing a realistic ground truth involves presenting a, inevitably prescribed and limited, fact pattern that plausibly extends the status quo situation into the future. That is, this isn't necessarily the way things will happen, nor is the end result the sole possible outcome given the starting conditions. It is merely a plausible course of progression given recent events. Human society and our economic and geopolitical relations constitute an irreducibly complex and chaotic system. There is no single inevitable equilibrium or stable state one should naturally expect it to fall into. Rather, the potential collapse of the U.S. Treasury, U.S. dollar, Euro dollar recycling system as the monetary regime underpinning global order isn't necessarily going to lead to the world economy resettling into a new, merely different monetary regime. Rather, what you get when order, especially long-dominant institutionally anchored order, collapses is disorder. Out of this disorder may emerge a new order, but such a phase transition to a new stable state, potentially anchored on a Bitcoin standard, is not likely to be a quick, easy, nor painless process. The ground truth presented here attempts to outline a sketch of what such a monetary disorder might look like. In particular, we seek to assess how the structure of motivation and constraint facing key agents in the global system, namely individuals, corporations, institutional capital pools, state leaders, national FX reserve managers, etc., may change. Finally, we examine how this changing structure of motivation and constraint may cause a reappraisal of the unique monetary and technological properties of Bitcoin. Starting Conditions Let's begin how we started this essay, with the blocking sanctions imposed on the Russian Central Bank. A few key facts about those decisions are important to note. 1. They were decided in late-night emergency sessions between G7 leaders in the days immediately after Russia's invasion and the U.S. manifestly did not extensively plan prior to deploying such an action. That is, this strategically important action was made in extremis, 
and without the full interagency review that the National Security Council typically engages in to vet important decisions and examine cascading consequences. 2. The initial round of sanctions, while severe, notably carved out exemptions for Russian commodity and energy trade. In that period, the Treasury Department went out of its way to tell energy and commodity firms about this exemption, even presenting helpful graphics guiding one through the thicket of compliant banking correspondent relationships to maintain trade with Russia. However, decision makers did not anticipate the wave of self-sanctioning as the moral position of continuing a commercial relationship with Russia became politically toxic. In very short order, most energy majors and hundreds of other Western firms announced the wind-down and pull-out of Russian business operations. As a result, Russian commodity exports, which normally trade at par in the global market, were assigned a significant discount as the basic structure of trade, insurance, and finance became increasingly difficult to secure. 3. Russia did not hold any U.S. Treasury securities at the time, having offloaded its remaining USTs in 2018, and had no direct onshore dollar exposure or balances with the Fed. Rather, Russia held its dollar and euro balances with the Bundesbank and the Bank of Japan. It was these fiat liabilities that were frozen by coordinated G7 sanctions. Thus, the implications redound not only to the dollar, but to the entire edifice of G7 fiat currencies, or inside money, and associated sovereign debt markets. In fact, Russia quickly retaliated by demanding European gas buyers in, quote, unfriendly countries pay in rubles, although the precise mechanism was a little bit more indirect and designed to ensure further FX reserves accumulated inside the Russian banking system, a move which helped restore the currency to pre-war value. One immediate lesson many drew from this event was a reconsideration of the risk of fiat liabilities in an environment where trust is lacking, including the trust not to violate territorial integrity and Westphalian sovereignty. This event reinforced the nature of fiat money as a system of centrally maintained ledger entries denominating a unit of account corresponding to a sovereign authority's sphere of power. As such, the use of such a liability as a medium of exchange or store of value is contingent on the political assent of that sovereign authority. Such assent may be revoked for morally justified reasons, but it should be expected that revoking fiat system access from one of the world's largest commodity exports will come with major consequences. The fact that this same state is a nuclear Eurasian power led by an aging and febrile autocrat in a no-limits strategic partnership with China, raises the geopolitical stakes considerably. The status of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency and of U.S. treasuries as the global reserve asset isn't just an economic matter. It's a matter of geopolitical alignment, which ultimately rests on the balance of power in the global system. Degradation in trust or confidence in G7 inside money is a necessary but not sufficient condition for a regime shift. History teaches us that such monetary shifts are almost always precipitated by larger geopolitical fractures, 
which typically manifest as war. Exceptions, such as the shift from pound sterling to the US dollar in the 1920s, can be attributed to the extremely close cultural and commercial relations between the two countries, and Britain's economic dependency on and indebtedness to the United States. In fact, such monetary shifts typically see rising, nominally revanchist, powers emerge as dominant creditors to the relatively declining, nominally status quo, powers. The U.S. was the leading creditor to an indebted, war-weary Europe in the early 20th century, and leveraged this position, as well as its dominance over industrial production and natural resources, to rewrite the rules of the international order in its favor. Now, China is the dominant global creditor and industrial power, and it is challenging, in partnership with aligned autocrats around the world, the status quo international system. It took victory in World War II for the United States to cement its hegemonic status. With equivalent debt loads coming out of the war on COVID, the West now faces the prospect of another European war and tensions rising in flashpoints the world over. As our adversaries seek to restructure the pattern of international trade, monetary account, and geopolitical relations to preference their interests, what will be the response of the U.S. and its global allies? China and Russia together have cemented their hold on the Eurasian heartland and are engaged in both violent contest in Ukraine and strategic influence campaigns, for example, information operations, active measures in the West, BRI investments, co-option of Western elites and institutions, to overturn the status quo global order. How will we respond when our principal adversaries, who between them control the marginal supply of oil, food, critical commodities, and finished consumer goods, use violence and coercion to pull the Eurasian periphery, OPEC, India, East Africa, etc., into their sphere of influence? While our adversaries accumulate gold and stockpile commodities, the West accumulates increasing sovereign debts and sees fragile supply chains manipulated at the whim of their competitors. If these nations try to precipitate a crisis in the U.S. Treasury and U.S. dollar recycling system and the associated global trade system to bring the world back to some sort of gold peg or commodity basket reserve system, what is our practical counter? especially when this emerging revanchist axis of authoritarians is not only endowed with natural resources, but is building up their own capital markets, semiconductor fabrication, internet fiber links and satellite systems, global media distribution channels, payment systems and digital currencies, trading houses, mercenary firms, hypersonic and other advanced missiles, autonomous unmanned weapons platforms, artificial intelligence, upgraded nuclear weapons, and other instruments of modern power projection. What then? Cascading Consequences Let's take a break right here and thank Fold for a fiat debit card that does the opposite of inflation. Rather than leaking and bleeding out the value of your dollars day to day, it's a debit card that exudes sats into your savings. 
you get sats back on everything in your life. You need to buy something on Amazon? Use a gift card and get 2.5% back. Sats straight to your savings. The reward of the hardest money in the world for the pain of having to use fiat poverty paper. You want to door dash that order? Get 7% back with a gift card. Want to pay for your bills? Your utility comes in? Get 1% base back or get a spend for 2% for 3%. Win up to a whole Bitcoin with every single spin. Now, you don't have to play the spins. You can just get a 1% back on every single thing that you buy. It's like a tax paid to you for having to use bad money. And even better... You can pay your taxes with the fold card and get sats back on that. If you haven't checked it out yet and you want to support this show, I've got a link right in the show notes for the free version. You can sign up for the free version and get 20,000 sats right out the gate. It works and it's magical. And 19,772,000 of my sats rest as proof. And you can also buy Bitcoin right in the app now. So there's that too. Check it out. Go to bitcoinaudible.com slash fold. Or if you hate memorizing easy things to memorize, there's a link right in the show notes. And you can just click on it. Go ahead and do it right now. While we get right back in to today's read. Cascading Consequences In lieu of narrative excursus, I present below some of the potential cascading consequences that may unfold from this crisis moment. The allure of not just the dollar, but G7 inside money, as forms of money claims that are the liabilities of a central bank or a private bank or a government, will become incrementally diminished for certain countries. In particular, commodity and energy exporting nations, i.e. OPEC+, are likely to be especially likely to diversify away to 1. alternative inside monies to denominate sales and maintain liquid foreign exchange, and 2. outside money to hold their assets in stores of value with less counterparty risk. This will take time and will start only on the margin, with things like the Saudi announcement of yuan-denominated oil sales, but it will create two problems for the U.S. dollar and U.S. Treasury system that may feed on themselves and trigger a larger crisis. Flow problem into petrodollar UST recycling. When J.P. Morgan lends to Glencore to finance a commodity deal, it creates U.S. dollars ex nil as a USD deposit. If the deal is with Saudi Arabia, Glencore uses that U.S. dollar deposit to pay Saudi Aramco, who then remits most of the profit to the Saudi Monetary Authority, or SMA. Ever since the 1973 Jeddah deal, the SMA recycles those dollars and buys U.S. treasuries at auction, which purchases were kept secret in a special off-books account at the treasury for many decades. Thus, any marginal deal with, say, Unipec to sell oil denominated in yuan means that the marginal U.S. dollars never gets created and therefore doesn't exist to support U.S. Treasury demand at a future auction. Instead, the SMA accumulates yuan reserves and looks to Chinese debt and asset markets to recycle its marginal surpluses. Again, this will not be an overnight change, 
but a gradual progression that sees marginal decline in U.S. dollar surpluses and a marginal rise in Chinese yuan surpluses. Stock problem as existing FX reserves are diversified. Exporting nations, for example OPEC+, with large existing U.S. Treasury and Eurodollar foreign exchange holdings, may decide to diversify on the margin away from those reserves to recycle excess surpluses into a different basket of non-G7 inside money and outside money, for example gold, commodity stockpiles, and eventually Bitcoin. This may result in marginal selling pressure in those sovereign debt markets, hurting U.S. Treasuries, even as USD remains strong due to reshoring capital inflows, high USD debt-serving needs in emerging markets, and weakness in other G7 currencies, namely the yen and the euro. Such a development would be confusing on the surface. Strong U.S. dollar, weak U.S. Treasury? but can easily be explained by exporters shifting away from holding their accumulated savings and surpluses in U.S. treasuries, but other emerging markets still needing U.S. dollars to service rising debt loads and rising prices in a more unstable and inflationary environment. China, in particular, has a strategic imperative to secure reliable commodity and energy sources to sustain their large population and heavy industry. However, they are constrained by a lack of domestic resources and an unfavorable geographic position that leaves their sea lanes past the first island chain and through the Strait of Malacca vulnerable to adversary disruption. Thus, a key feature of BRI is the development of extensive overland trade routes and pipelines through Eurasia, while also securing access to deep water ports, for example, Gwadar, and other maritime infrastructure throughout the Indian Ocean. However, the Chinese don't yet have a blue water navy that would realistically be able to protect these sea lanes, though they have embarked on a massive program of shipbuilding and defense infrastructure throughout the South China Sea to salami slice incremental control over contested islands. In this regard, China will need to leverage India's history of strategic autonomy and historically close Russian relations, especially on weapons purchases, to marginally align the subcontinent and its direction and mitigate the potential for the Quad to evolve into a military alliance geared towards containing China. One can see developing the contours of a loosely pro-China contingent forming around the Eurasian periphery as pro-China-Pakistan now dominates Afghanistan in the wake of the U.S. pullout, and China weighs occupying the Bagram base we left behind, as Iran seals a $400 billion 25-year strategic energy deal with China, along with other military and intelligence support, as Iraq becomes the single largest recipient of BRI investment in 2021, as the Gulf Cooperation Council, or GCC, countries strengthen ties with China, and as, quote, Erdogan turns Turkey into a Chinese client state, end quote. Looking at a map, one sees a continuous chain of states spanning the Arabian to the Black Sea in increasing alignment with China. The only hitch in China's strategy here is Russia failing to live up to their end of the strategic partnership as they apparently falter in Ukraine. 
Still, from China's perspective, a weakened Russia more beholden to China for military, economic, and diplomatic support is a net win, especially as the resulting disruptions to commodity flows exacerbate Western inflation and debt problems, while China can scoop up key inputs at a discount. For example, while Trafigura and Glencore suffer public, quote, liquidity issues and call for bailouts, China's state-owned Unipec is quietly securing cheap supplies to add to China's strategic stockpiles. From this vantage point of growing geostrategic strength, one can imagine certain states, especially OPEC+, moving first towards a proto-petro-yuan system. In such a system, these commodity exporters would sell to a hungry China and recycle yuan surpluses in Chinese banks, which, in a mirror of the U.S. dollar-U.S. Treasury system, would allow the Chinese Ministry of Finance to issue bonds to soak up these excess deposits. Now, this would have major limits in the near term, as China does not run an open capital account, although it does allow limited Chinese yuan convertibility through the gold exchange in Shanghai. And yet... Put yourself in the position of an OPEC plus or other emerging market exporter, especially one with a weak human rights record or autocratic governance system. You see a U.S. capital account that is open to you right now, but that you may now plausibly worry could suddenly close to you if you get crosswire with a future political administration. On the other hand, you see a mostly closed Chinese capital account and associated questionable sovereign currency and corporate accounting manipulation, but one that you may reasonably wager will marginally become more open, especially to fellow commodity-rich autocrats such as yourself. What do you do? I think you hedge your bets and spread your political and currency risk around. As a result, U.S. treasuries marginally lose, and Chinese government bonds marginally win. If you add net selling pressure from the Chinese U.S. Treasury holding, possible sterilized through FEMA, or not, and if you see the formerly reliable bid from Japan fade away, the West will be forced to incrementally dial up financial repression, increase forced buying by domestic institutions, and engage in forms of quantitative easing and yield curve control that will be increasingly difficult to disguise without precipitating an all-out inflation or debt crisis in the developed world. When you add an aging and unhealthy Western population with embedded social obligations alongside the rising defense and green infrastructure financing needs, the credit demand from the state will inexorably grow. Critically, this demand, because it's attached to a digital printing press, is not as rate-sensitive as the private sector. That is, G7 countries will sacrifice their currencies, and in the process those of many other dollarized nations, in order to rapidly pivot to engage in the concurrent fight against the East and climate change. Net zero objectives will be expensive and require more sovereign debt finance, but they also need commodities to build solar panels, wind farms, power nuclear plants, all while importing fossil fuels to bridge the renewable transition. The Fed will not be able to make real positive rates, and governments will print stimmies, subsidies, tax relief to shield consumers from commodity shocks as best they can. The West will need to construct politically palatable justifications 
to enforce the resulting pain on bondholders and domestic savers, and hope that resulting currency wars don't trigger destabilizing responses. However, if critical commodity inputs and energy sources become strategically scarce, the potential for conflict rises across all domains, including cyber war, trade war, currency war, gray zone hybrid war, deniable storage, etc. This will mean a dramatic rise in proxy wars and the application of unconventional, asymmetric warfare strategies to deny, degrade, and disrupt adversary plans. Domestically, this will also coincide with a growing impulse towards price controls, wealth taxes, class war, and increasing political instability. Democratic systems will come under extreme strain, and some may buckle under the pressure, a good portion of which may be actively encouraged by deniable adversary political influence operations or cyber-enabled sabotage of Western elections. Now, while China may marginally benefit from these trends, many nations are not likely to trust China any more than they do the U.S. now. More likely will be a general degradation in trust in fiat reserves and the reliability of political commitments to property rights and the rule of law to structure international economic relations. Fiat claims for the near term will still be necessary to denominate exchange and settle bilateral trade among more segregated blocks of mutual trade in a deglobalizing world, so nations will still need to hold a certain amount of, quote, inside money for their liquidity needs. However, many nations will likely shift the savings portion of their national reserves towards harder assets. Commodity exporters in particular will seek to accumulate such outside money rather than fiat that is basically guaranteed to devalue against their scarce resources. It makes no sense to give away your national endowment for fiat, especially as the world faces peak cheap oil and the West is committed to move away from fossil fuels. When China is your best and growing customer and the West turning its nose away in contempt at your key export, it should be no surprise how those nations choose to realign themselves. As a result, these decisions will be subject to increasingly bifurcating forces as the dividing poles between East, China, and West, U.S., put strong pressure on weaker powers in their sphere of influence to commit to a side and allocate their surpluses accordingly. To the extent that nations still rely on and trust in the protection offered by the U.S.-led military and nuclear umbrella, they may accept the implicit derogation of national economic sovereignty by remaining tied to the U.S. Treasury system in exchange. China, using Russian mercenaries and other gray zone hybrid forces as extensions of its military power projection, may do the same to their sphere of influence. After all, this is how all imperial tribute systems have functioned in the past. Render under Caesar. If this dynamic plays out, one can imagine the People's Bank of China emerging as the equivalent to the commodity system as the Federal Reserve is to the dollar system. Just as the U.S. maintains dominant control over the supply and access to dollars, China could assume dominant control over the supply and access to critical supplies, 
Now, this is an imperfect analogy, as the ladder structure of control requires a vastly larger infrastructure. For example, shipping, ports, trade finance, and military capabilities. For example, a blue water plan that China does not currently possess, though is intent on building quickly. In such an emerging system, China would leverage its friendly relations with the largest commodity and energy producers, its strong BRI web, greased by 5G and DCEP installs, growing shipbuilding capacity, and large commodity and food stockpiles to marginally contest the U.S. position in the Pacific and establish its own peer-level sphere of influence. As we mentioned, while China will marginally strengthen as a result of this dynamic, it will struggle to build up, at least anytime soon, the deep reservoir of international trust that sustained confidence in the U.S. Treasury and dollar system. That is, while a proto-petro-yuan China government bond recycling mechanism may form, it will likely be very small and weak, especially as China continues to struggle to build up endogenous demand in its domestic economy. Until China can escape the middle-income trap, overcome COVID, and develop a strong internal consumer-driven economic engine, it will need to continue to run structural surpluses and will struggle to absorb large inflows of external surpluses. The question remains, where do global surpluses go when fiat reserves lose their luster as a store of value and China is still not prepared to open its capital account? The answer in recent history has been a mix of safe and liquid Western equities, and desirable real estate or farmland. There's a reason firms from China and Japan and GCC nations are some of the largest owners of U.S.-listed firms, and why the city of London has been known as Londongrad. In an era of globalization and the free flow of capital, the West welcomed this dynamic. Now, both sides are questioning the logic of this deal. Western defense and intelligence agencies have long bemoaned the national security consequences of inviting so much money and influence from our foreign adversaries. They would welcome that particular tap being turned down, if not off. Similarly, there is now little love lost between the U.S. and China and Saudi Arabia, let alone Russia. Those nations now see how their ownership of these massive overseas assets is merely one court order or OFAC action away from going poof. Further, with the Western green energy transition, why would commodity exporters agree to finance their replacement industries by continuing to recycle their U.S. dollar surpluses into U.S. treasuries? Gold is the most obvious beneficiary, in the short term, of this repositioning. It is clear that Russia and China, as well as Turkey and India, have been steadily adding to their national gold reserves. Under extreme sanctions now, Russia may attempt to leverage its gold reserve to stabilize its currency and potentially even enforce a form of oil-gold-ruble peg. Such an attempt at re-monetizing gold will be strongly resisted by the West and may potentially interrupt already weak commodity and trade flows. As such, China will be hesitant to greenlight any extremely disruptive monetary move by Russia until it feels it is sufficiently insulated, which is not presently. It is more likely that China will assent to more marginal shifts and gradual development of a Eurasian monetary and trade bloc 
that incorporates gold, and potentially a peg to a basket of commodities to support its broader ambitions for the internationalization of the yuan via its DCEP technology. Given Putin's dependence on China in his Ukrainian misadventure, he's more likely to hold fire on any extreme actions, at least until Xi feels like letting him off the leash. While gold makes sense on the margin, as a historical go-to form of outside money for sovereign and individual store value, it suffers from many drawbacks, which led it to fail as a global monetary regime in the first place. Its protection and verification is expensive and requires large centralized custodians. In fact, the gold reserves of 36 foreign central banks and the IMF are stored in subterranean vaults under the New York Fed at 33 Liberty Street. If the premise of one's monetary diversifications is to avoid counterparty risk and backstop a loss of faith in the U.S.'s fiscal sustainability or political neutrality over the dollar system, it's not clear that gold in a Fed vault is any different than U.S. treasuries on a Fed ledger. Gold may work sort of, for the emerging access of Eurasian authoritarians as a way to bootstrap a yuan or Eurasian euro, quote-unquote, monetary regime to support a trading bloc that can gradually attract periphery nations and over time dominate a region of the world accounting for a majority of the global population and GDP. Such a long-term plan may or may not succeed, but it is apparently the strategy now in motion by the principal adversaries of the West. In sum, G7 inside money now has a new form of counterparty risk attached. Some may balance to other non-G7 inside monies, but those aren't fundamentally more attractive. Gold is the historical standby outside money, but suffers from similar custodial risk, and isn't suited to support the velocity of money and credit claims our modern trade system requires. It still relies on trust in the guarantor of the paper liabilities issued against the shiny bars claimed to exist in some distant vault. Equity markets have absorbed a massive store of value premium, but are now vulnerable to inflation, as well as a dangerous dynamic as passive, price-insensitive inflows dominate the indices, contribute to massive capital misallocation, and threaten extreme price volatility. In addition, one may think of Apple or Amazon stock or bonds as a safe long-term investment until one plays out what happens to their supply chains if things ever get heated with China. Real estate is a natural alternative, but it is extremely politically exposed and is likely to be the first asset class subject to extractive taxation as governments at all levels struggle with insolvency. Real estate also requires upkeep, isn't globally fungible, comes with massive transaction costs, low liquidity, and is extremely sensitive to interest rate moves. Commodities themselves, as stockpiled stores of value, may supplement on the margin, but these require expensive storage and transportation, are not always globally fungible, and don't last very long. The Confederacy thought King Cotton would save them in the Civil War, just as Russia is now attempting to use oil. In the end, it didn't work out the way they thought. This brings us to Bitcoin, which is a novel, synthetic, and absolutely scarce digital commodity 
with global fungibility, limited counterparty risk, zero if self-custodied, large and growing liquidity, and unit scalability to settle any quantity of value. Its monetary properties offer a similar, if not better, scarcity and bearer profile than gold and other commodities. Its technical properties offer a similar, if not better, transactional and settlement profile than fiat exchange system rails, for example SWIFT and Fedwire. As an open-source global software project, it is undergoing continuous innovation, especially in the surrounding domain of interoperable second-layer protocols, for example Lightning Network and related applications, that extend its usability to everyday commerce in mobile-first environments around the world. It thus can serve as a, quote, reserve asset for the people that isn't naturally centralized by central banks or large financial institutions. From the perspective of a FX reserve manager, especially one caught on the diplomatic fence and pulled between the rising east-west dichotomy, Bitcoin, as a politically neutral reserve asset, may become marginally more attractive. It helps that this neutral reserve asset, being natively digital, comes with its own decentralized rails for trustless transaction and settlement. Some nations may apprise the increasingly fraught geopolitical environment and seek to hedge their position with an outside money system that is mostly insulated from transactional interference. I say mostly insulated as, for now, Bitcoin to fiat rails will be mostly subject to the political control of jurisdictions in which those rails are operational. States will still seek to control and monitor Bitcoin and related stablecoin flows as best they can, which will set up a technical arms race between protocol development and chain analysis. Some states may desire the benefits of holding Bitcoin for themselves, but seek to limit domestic individual engagement. Such roadblocks via internet restrictions, monetary surveillance, etc. may be successful for a time, but the Trojan horse effect may be difficult to stop, and the halting but steady pattern of adoption, appreciation, adoption continues apace. In the United States, the rise of Bitcoin companies, especially miners, as economically and soon politically powerful entities, will likely mitigate any extreme federal government response and will result in pro-Bitcoin coalitions at the local and state level, and increasingly represented in Congress and future White House administrations. As President Biden's executive order on digital assets and other statements by officials such as Gary Gensler and Janet Yellen makes clear, the United States will most likely accept Bitcoin's gradual adoption and increasing monetization. While some incumbents and officials see Bitcoin as a threat to certain political projects, i.e. modern monetary theory-inspired fiscal spending and central bank digital currency surveillance regime and capital control system, Many others will come to see the inherent geopolitical advantage Bitcoin can accrue to the United States. For if our adversaries are attempting to overturn the U.S. dollar and treasury system and related international order to build their own competing bloc, dominating Eurasia with gold, energy, commodities at its heart, what is our counter-response? We could agree to re-monetize gold. But given Russia and China's holdings, that would rebalance the monetary center of gravity in their favor. We would benefit from the relief of the exorbitant burden, and the resulting shift in capital flows and trade deficits would help rebuild our domestic manufacturing base. 
but it would mean accepting a much diminished role for the U.S. in the world system and a seating of significant power to emboldened authoritarians dominating Eurasia. It's not clear that such a system would be inherently any more stable than the current one and not lead to war eventually. Many Western technocrats see salvation in some combination of G7 fiscal reform, energy revolution, domestic CBDC tech, and a compromise monetary regime anchored more significantly to special drawing rights, or SDRs. In such a regime, the U.S. would use its incumbent power over institutions like the World Bank and the IMF to move towards a global system of interoperable CBDCs to support ESDR issuance that may or may not prejudice or exclude compatibility with China's DCEP. In such a vision, these ESDRs may help sustain a version of globalization, balance and settle global trade, and accommodate rising powers without the West giving up too much control. Whether China and OPEC Plus would accede to such a system is an open question. This system would help shore up nervous national governments' control over restive populations by concentrating key technical powers over savings and commercial transactions. It would enable more tailored forms of capital control and allocation to direct financing to politically preferred sectors, for example, green industries, quote-unquote, while squeezing disfavored firms out. One could see the West moving closer to a Chinese model of state capitalism, and a similar direction in national approaches to individual rights and political expression. Bitcoin, on the other hand, offers an alternative, one that future elected leaders under pressure from a growing cohort of Bitcoin voters may come to recognize as a rapidly growing economic phenomena, as well as a quasi-political social movement. From a national security perspective, Key decision-makers may realize that the fact that allowing Bitcoin to monetize alongside or outpacing gold would disproportionately benefit the U.S., whose citizens and firms hold potentially a majority of all Bitcoin and whose companies and capital markets would grow in tandem. That is, while China and Russia doubled down on analog gold, the U.S. can countermove to digital gold. As China faces energy scarcity, North America's and our close ally Australia's prodigious energy abundance gives our states and locales a natural advantage to compete in the global zero-sum proof-of-work hash race for the block reward. The unique demand characteristics of Bitcoin may also help drive the transition to reduce the carbon intensity of the grid without state subsidies, and incentivize energy innovation like in small modular nuclear reactors and hybrid Bitcoin battery, wind, and solar generation projects. So where might things go from here? I think it's plausible to expect some nations, potentially smaller OPEC or other non-aligned nations, to invoice commodity exports in a diversified basket of fiat. Dollars and euros, yes, but also ruble and renminbi while shifting marginally to hold accumulated surpluses in outside money like gold and, slowly and on the margin, Bitcoin. This will represent a transition from inside money to outside money, 
and a pendulum swinging away from globalization to regional trade blocks, with a renewed emphasis on self-sufficiency, energy and commodity reliability, domestic manufacture, and friend sourcing via supply chains that otherwise can't be cheaply reshored. The U.S. dollar and treasury system will become increasingly reliant on central management and intervention, with things like SRF, FEMA, and eventually central clearing structurally more important, especially as funds are drawn down from the RRP. In particular, as long as U.S. treasuries remain money-good collateral for CCPs, facilitating hedges in the offshore market for commodities, oil, and interest rate swaps, then a major disjunctive crisis in the U.S. dollar system can be avoided. This is one reason to expect such CCPs to be increasingly brought under the control of national authorities, restricting leverage and increasing margin as another form of financial repression, creating another forced buyer of U.S. treasuries. These moves will do nothing to change the fundamental fiscal position of the United States, nor restore foundational stability to the U.S. Treasury market. They merely mark further progression of how the private market for U.S. Treasuries will have to be effectively euthanized. The U.S. will never default, but the U.S. dollar will increasingly buy less real stuff, namely energy and commodities, as the government tries to inflate its debt away. That said, fundamentally unstable systems can look stable for a while, like a boiling pot of water up to 99 degrees Celsius, until they hit some threshold point, which is unknowable in the U.S. dollar and treasury system, that unleashes a dramatic phase transition. Conclusion Prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. Niels Bohr 1970. Our analytical framework and scenario analysis paints a picture of a new paradigm for a future geopolitical order. At the current moment, we are seeing the early signs of fracture in the international system. Global imbalances are extreme, and legacy institutions are coming under increasing strain. Historically, such imbalances have been resolved through war and or civil disorder. One hopes that we, civilized peoples in the modern era, have moved past such violent means. But hope isn't a strategy. Instead, we should look to where humanity has always looked to elevate our capacities and conditions. Technology. In this sense, Bitcoin represents a real hope that peoples around the world can achieve economic agreement and gain through trade, without giving up individual or national sovereignty. In a time of mistrust, we need trustless money to carry us through. Perhaps on the other side of this disruptive period, this trustless money can form the ground upon which human civilization can anchor relations of mutual benefit and cooperation, of gains through balanced trade that can help drive the technological innovation and economic growth upon which our collective future depends. All right, and that wraps up the amazing piece from Matthew Pines on the future geopolitical order and Bitcoin, an initial assessment. 
Now let's take a quick break and talk about the cold card multi-sig setup that the United States is going to use when they start putting Bitcoin on their reserves. Now, one thing that would be really, really cool is if every congressman and congresswoman was given a cold card Mark IV that they had to keep their keys safe and their vote was literally just signing the transaction and it was like a 51 out of 100 for senators and then whatever multi-sig transaction for representatives. I mean, imagine the distribution of those keys and everybody's using a cold card and everybody has their own seed backed up on a micro SD card that they keep separate. Think of the security of those funds and how sad it would be to have the cold card and such incredible hardware and peak security given to a balance of Bitcoin that you then put into the hands of Congress. It's like the absolute peak of hardware, Bitcoin hardware security, and the absolute lowest of the low when it comes to integrity of the key holders. It's like the most contradictory juxtaposition possible. And if you want to keep your Bitcoin safe and prevent it from being behind the great congressional cold card multi-sig establishment, that you want to make sure it goes where you go and that you have kept it safe and that you own it, that's why you need a cold card. You need a hardware wallet. You need one of the hardware security devices from CoinKite. There are so many to pick from for simple and easy to use, mobile integrated, the fully advanced cold card Mark IV and or the cold card Q1, which is now available for pre-order or the more budget friendly, low cost, simple options like the tap signer that just exist entirely in a card. Own your Bitcoin Secure your keys, have the coldest of cold storage with CoinKite. And it's also a really great way to support this show that you use my link that's right down there in the show notes to go there when you make your orders. And my code Bitcoin Audible will get you 9% off. So it's not just helping out the show, it is helping out yourself. Check it out. And now let's get into a short guy's take for this read. And I just thought this was a great aggregation of so much of what has been going on with, and more importantly, the trust implications. Because largely, the the foundation of the monetary regime has been built on, I mean, the petrodollar system has been built on the acceptance of the dollar and the recycling of that into U.S. treasuries of the OPEC nations, of the oil producing nations that the the fundamental center center of the the guarantee so to speak of the reliability of the value and the redemption of US dollar and US treasury has been in the fact that the the energy center of planet earth is constantly recycling their surpluses into this asset so an analogy I like to give, um, or I, I did in some show some time back, was that it wouldn't even really matter what that asset was, because if you, you essentially are able to establish a politically a political foundation for a market, whether or not there is any natural demand for this thing, because you've established a political agreement and you're talking specifically about a liability. Like if you did this for Beanie Babies, 
you could essentially prop up a multi-trillion dollar market for Beanie Babies. And you'd have second, third, and fourth order effects around the globe of people storing up and doing operating um, uh, operating costs and medium of exchange in Beanie Babies because you have this guaranteed buyer, essentially. This guaranteed buyer that is fueled by capital from everywhere on, on planet Earth that needs oil, that needs to get in a car and move something around or ship something or run a machine. You're talking about the entire industrial base forced to push value into this market well, then that will prop up a market for anything. But that is based on, it is, it is essentially propped up by the reliability of those promises, that those promises will not be unilaterally and massively abused, which the U.S. over the last 30 or so years has massively abused it. I mean, we've run astonishing deficits and the built-up liabilities that can't even possibly be paid off and what we have been doing, we're, we're eating all of the surplus of these other countries that have essentially been the U.S., the creditors to the U.S. They have, they are the ones who, where the value, like, where does the value come from? If you run a deficit, you have used up more resources than you produced, period. So how could the entire Western world constantly be further and further into debt. Everyone buying U.S. dollars, saving in U.S. dollars and buying U.S. treasuries as an asset has been siphoned from the world over. Now, when it is an authoritarian regime and they can essentially redirect or they can, um, they can offload that cost onto their populations, onto the developing world. And this is where like something like Alex Gladstein's piece comes in on structural adjustment and what's happened with the World Bank and the IMF and the fact that the total outflows from like the 1970s or something from the developing world um, and from quote-unquote third world countries has been $63 trillion. It's simply not sustainable. It can't go on forever. And eventually... It eventually, because it's an exponential, because it's a feedback loop, right? Is that the larger your debt, the more the interest payments and the more you have to go further into debt. Your deficit has to get even larger in order to pay for the continuation to the continued maintenance of that debt. And then if you keep propping it up and paying off the last debt by lowering your interest rates, you're putting more and more pressure on the value of the currency, on the purchasing power of the money itself. But what you end up doing is just completely breaking apart any confidence in holding a liability of a sovereign institution that has no means, no restraint, and no capacity whatsoever to actually run a surplus. But when you are talking about a market that is so large that you cannot escape it without, like, like just the, the mere movement of $5 trillion, $10 trillion in any particular direction there's no valve big enough to move it. Like there's, there's nothing to exit to. Like this is where you get the, the distinction between in, uh, inner money and out, uh, inside money and outside money. 
There simply is not the volume and the capacity to move, to house, to store over long term without constant degradation and without tons of other counterparty risks and problems outside money, which means there's no exit from the system. There has been no means to remove our value from a political liability. All we have been able to do is shift around which political liability we are holding. And that's what Matthew Pines is basically talking about here is whose political liability becomes the new dominant and or a marginally greater part of the global monetary regime of the global system. But I think what we have seen is the breakdown in trust, the, the realization that the counterparty risk of the liability that has been the dominant political regime is suddenly up in the air because it's suddenly become a political weapon. It has been for all the faults of the, the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. They have at least been pretty damn neutral and or muted, so to speak, in their use of that power when it comes to modern industrialized nations. They've never really they've never attacked China with their, you know, the bank accounts that they have in U.S. dollar and U.S. treasuries. They never attacked Russia. They never attacked anybody in Europe. They've never attacked Canada, Australia. Basically, they, I mean, the developing world has, ba- has essentially been a punching bag for all of the Western industrialized nations because it's just, you know, colonialism moved from a political sphere to a monetary sphere. But these aren't major players in the environment anyway. Like, they're not on the political scope. So they can just, you know, con- they can basically just make, subjugate them indefinitely. And if they keep supporting authoritarian governments with more and more control, like more uh, dictatorial control, control and um, continue to undermine and or destroy democratic processes in these nations, which they clearly have done, they have clearly done to continue to establish and cement their monetary control. Well, then they just they basically outsource the responsibility of screwing over the nation to its authoritarian leaders. Is it like the U.S. isn't eviscerating the economies of these African or South American nations or whatever? The U.S. is just making a deal with a dictator who is getting insanely rich and just not worrying about the fact that they just, you know, eviscerated half of the savings of everybody and, you know, all all the SIFA nations that you're using the SIFA franc and like all of these things. I mean, this is not a new story. This, this over and over and over again. And these these countries end up having <clears throat> like far like orders of magnitude worse recessions and economic shifts and dependencies because you know structural adjustment ends up basically undermining investment in their own autonomy, their own ability to produce food, and they become specialized for some subset of Western nations to produce like one commodity or one. A resource and then import everything every every other thing that they did their food their clothes their their you know networking their technology like all of that stuff they become far far more dependent because the you know the western monetary powers are essentially using them as a side project to just produce whatever resource they need as cheaply as possible by gutting all of their manufacturing and production base in the resources that would actually create their 
uh, that would actually make them independent. But there's a really great quote. A great quote. I saved a lot of different clips. Hey guys, shush. Um, I saved a lot of different um, quotes from this, which again I hope to get back to in a guy's take. Um, I'm increasingly not thinking that this. I might not even make it this week, and I'll have to refresh this and Lynn Alden's piece in my mind um, to get through this. But I just thought this quote was really great, and it's probably the one I'll use at the beginning of the episode. But it says. One immediate lesson many drew from this event, and this is in reference to the shutdown of the foreign uh, G7 inside money accounts of Russia and essentially confiscation of all of their reserves, or at least a massive, all of their offshore reserves, essentially, because they had the G7 nations essentially have unilateral control over the global monetary system, says... Quote, this one immediate lesson many drew from this event was a reconsideration of the risk of fiat liabilities in an environment where trust is lacking, including the trust not to violate territorial integrity and Westphalian sovereignty. This event reinforced the nature of fiat money as a system of centrally maintained ledger entries denominating a unit of account corresponding to a sovereign authority's sphere of power. As such, the use of such a liability as a medium of exchange or store of value is contingent on the political assent of that sovereign authority. Such assent may be revoked for morally justified reasons, but it should be expected that revoking fiat system access from one of the world's largest commodity exports, will come with major consequences. The fact that this same state is a nuclear Eurasian power led by an aging and febrile autocrat in a no-limits strategic partnership with China raises the geopolitical stakes considerably. This is just a great kind of summation of what I think this means. Or, or at least just how big of a deal what happened really was. And what this means for all the nations who have been reliant on the international trade system and the international monetary system, holding U.S. treasuries, using U.S. dollars, holding any, any of the G7 inside money, fiat liabilities, whatever... They are all looking at their accounts and the value that they think they own and realizing that it might not be anywhere near as secure or as reliable as they thought. They could literally wake up tomorrow morning and find out that it's all gone and nobody is going to like that that position has arisen. And in fact, it's very clear that they are all slowly but surely on the margin trying to shift out. Um, and one of the things I didn't realize, kind of the situation of the Bank of, the J- uh, Bank of Japan and U.S. Treasuries, and that even that um, relationship might not really have any of the, buy- of the liquidity needed to continue to prop up. Like the U.S. Treasury market is in a very interesting and very precarious situation at a time when, I mean, Obviously, it would be at this time, but at a time when the liabilities are just staggering. But it is going to be crazy to see how things unfold. And essentially what is going to benefit the most from all of this 
is outside money, which means that we are going to go back to looking at true asset, true monetary assets, true monetary goods on the markets, and how these things can separately provide the value of holding value without counterparty risk, of transmitting value across time, of transmitting value across space and across jurisdiction. All of the, all of the aspects of money suddenly come when, when the foundation of the current system is no longer trusted as a being something that is going to serve you, and that even if it does serve you in the movement and storing of capital, that it won't do it with the storing of value over the long term because it's now tied to liabilities that are being absolutely drained and have no liquidity to continue to shore up that value. And a government and a central bank that is now having to do QE every two and a half years because it can't make it through another, it can't you know, survive through a period of banking stability for even that long a time. Everyone is going to be reassessing what they think of as money and what actually is able to secure and stabilize international trade and supply chains. And I love that uh, there's another quote. I don't even think I've saved this one, but talking about how Bitcoin could be the quote unquote people's reserve and that what we could see is essentially all of these populations beginning like the individuals in them, like this ground up global grassroots movement to use Bitcoin regardless of the capital controls in spite of these political changes, in spite of, you know, somebody developing and using a CBDC or SDRs in, you know, this block versus this block. And as the trust in those different political blocks falls away, and as small nations realize that they've been bled dry and that they can maybe even get out of it, what you could potentially see is Bitcoin enabling a mass resistance against local governments, a, a, an on-the-margin disillusion of political power from the governments of, from authoritarian and uh, Western government, all governments, all centralized institutions back toward the direction and value assignment of individuals and producers and small businesses. Essentially, what we are talking about is a global consensus problem. And in that context, Bitcoin is literally a global, jurisdictionless, and revolutionary consensus technology. But it's also... There's so many traditions involved here. There are so many, you know, ideological foundations for this. There's so much trust and uh, liabilities, like like interconnectedness and interdependence, wrapped up into all of this. That really kind of reinforces. Um, I think it's Svetsky's three generational theory is that that. We should be looking 60 years out when we're talking about what it means to, to, to actually watch a monetary standard develop because all of this is going to move very slowly. There will be shocks. There will be points of very aggressive and precipitating moves, but I think they will happen in plateaus. Like, like the whole thing, they're just, there is no 
release valve large enough to shift value at this scale? Like, you know, when you think about like Bitcoin's full potential valuation in the article that we talked about not too long ago, and you think about monetary markets and you think about store value markets, I think the biggest thing to realize is that we are watching the giants of the giants collapse and shift like we're we're watching two planets circle around and crash into each other like these things happen at enormous very very long time scales like nothing can move fast in this scope in in this domain that we are describing and that we are talking about like all of it is macro it is the macroest of macro. <laughs> so um, with that, uh, I don't really have any time to go further into this, but it, like that was just kind of the first thing that came to mind. And I want to dig further into this in a guy's take with some more specificity, so to speak, and also apply it to the open information networks and the, the value of it. Because basically everything that I talked about post just finishing up this article was really about Bitcoin as a store of value asset. As a, as a settlement system. We're not even getting into lightning. We're not even getting into open information networks and alternative infrastructure and all of this stuff, which is an entirely different domain or an entirely additional and secondary or higher layer domain. And the fact that you can use this as a transactional medium with the lightning network and in, you know, in a jurisdictionless, um, extremely fluid and extremely fast-moving economy, like, like series of open open financial services and payment services. So there is a lot to unpack in this discussion. And uh, so it's, it's definitely something that we'll have to revisit a hundred different times for a hundred different reasons, but I would like to do a guy's take on kind of a little, a few of the things that we have covered, a few of the articles that we have covered so far, so far and what I think they kind of set the stage for. So don't forget to subscribe, stay tuned. We will get into that Um it's looking like next week. I've got so many things lined up. I thought I was going to get a lot more done this week, but I've literally had a podcast with someone else scheduled every single day this week, which is really like eaten into my time. It's been a lot of fun, like just kind of hanging out and chilling. Like if anybody's seen, uh, I saw the John Vallis episode. I was just on with Bitcoin.Review. Um, I'm going to be on with Liberty Lockdown tomorrow. Um, just, just a lot going on. So I'll try to remember to put those links in the show notes. If you want to check out those episodes, I'll put in, um, I have no idea if the Bitcoin.review is released yet, but I know John Vallis's is. So I will have that link in today's show notes. It should be right in the description while you like, while you're listening to it right now, that's where it should be. And it should be next to our amazing sponsors and a thank you to them for Continuing to support this show, it's been a long time running and it's great to have Bitcoin on, solid Bitcoin-only businesses that I am huge fans of. Uh, like, huge fans? I'm multiple fans that I am a big user of. Because sometimes I listen to other podcasts, like I listen to Joe Rogan and like he's talking about like ZipRecruiter. I mean, maybe he does use ZipRecruiter or whatever and I'm just like thinking like, God, I'm so glad that I'm not advertising for companies that I just don't really have any relate like I don't care about you know I am I am a fan of Swan of CoinKite of Fold and the fact that they support the show as well that they help fund me to keep able to keep being able to do this is just 
awesome, and I appreciate it. And if you want to support the show, a really easy way to support the show um, that is good for you because I think these are great products and services is to use them, is to use them through my links. And honestly, a couple of places to get like massive amounts of sats, getting sats back on your debit card purchases, getting your IRA into Bitcoin with Swan and keeping all of it safe on your coin kite. I can't, I mean, there's not an easier bet there. And those links are also right in the show notes. So with that, we will close this one out. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you to the Audionauts. Thank you to everyone who follows my ramblings and listens to all the books and takes this Bitcoin journey with me, especially in these really crazy times. Um, Because what a crazy... (laughs) It's, It's nuts, man. It's, it's nuts. You just think about like what is happening in the world. We are living through quite the exciting time in history. So um, I appreciate that you all want to explore it and try to make sense of it with me. So with that, thank you guys so much for listening. And I will catch you on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. Until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. you don't know the thing to do is not to get scared but to learn ayn rand atlas shrugged this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com